morning, everyone. You're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's Web Radio station site. This morning, we are going to talk to Trevor Clatterbuck from Fresh Fork Market in Cleveland, Ohio. Good morning, Trevor. Oh, good morning, Kate. Yes. And, uh, yes, we both went to Case Western University, and uh, I guess you studied political science and business and somehow got sidetracked to creating a CSA for the people in Cleveland. So let's start with how you got diverted from pre-law to food supply. Oh, boy. Um, Well, I was a senior at... At Case Western, as you had indicated, and myself and uh, four other gentlemen were selected to represent the school in the first ever uh, regional entrepreneurship challenge and put together through a nonprofit group. And uh, over the summer before my senior year, uh, senior year of undergrad, uh, the five of us got together, and the one rule of the competition was to come up with an idea that's viable for Northeast Ohio. And so that week, we had five days with uh, instructional demonstrations throughout the day and time in the afternoon to work on our business idea. We had to come up with an idea to pitch to a panel of prospective uh, finances. And it, it was to imitate um, an angel network was the, the, the plan to kind of show you that this is how uh, small enterprises are created and, and things like that. So anyhow, we were dining out in downtown Cleveland in the middle of August of 2007 and uh, eating at a restaurant that was marketing themselves as uh, focused on local food. And... Um, you know, we're sitting there eating, asking the waitress what's local on that day's menu, and she goes back to the kitchen and asks the chef what's local, and he comes back and actually says, well, unfortunately, we don't have anything local on the menu. And we were kind of taken aback by this, and we're asking, well, why don't you? And and they essentially gave us a laundry list of different reasons. You know, they had no farmers. There was a food safety issue. There was a, a distribution challenge. Um, and what it really came down at the end of the day was that there were so many moving pieces that in the busy day of a restaurant operator, they could not source all the food that they needed for the restaurant effectively. It was a communication problem. So the first version of Fresh Fork Market that I launched in the summer of 2008 was a Amazon marketplace for restaurants to buy from. That is a one-stop shop where they could get one invoice, shop from multiple farmers, and receive one delivery. And over the years, that's now changed, where that's a small portion of my business. And the biggest portion of my business that started in 2009 was a farm buying club modeled after a CSA. The difference being, uh, CSA for those who don't know, Community Support Agriculture, the difference being between a CSA and our farm buying club is that we don't grow any of our own food, but instead we uh, directly work with 108 local farmers all within a 75-mile radius of Cleveland, and each week we put together a grab bag of produce, meats, cheeses, an entire meal plan for the customers to, to get what they need. And and are these things predominantly organic that you supply, or do you um, consider any farm that's growing regular produce? Uh, No, it's going to be more on the organic side. There are some items that we have. So I'm going to start with organic. I would estimate, based on dollar volume, about 80% of our product is organic in the sense that it's either grown organically or certified organic. For most of my producers, being small family farms, the certification is uh, prohibitive, um, and I don't enforce it, and my customers don't demand it. Um, 
The other 20% is going to be more of conventional product that is grown on family operations, but in the case of particularly apples, peaches, and stone fruits, um, they can't be grown successfully uh, in the organic method in Northeast Ohio. Those items are more conventional. Okay. Um, and so, so do you maybe think of yourself as maybe um, a food activist by, by doing this type of thing and, and supporting the local farms? Well, I've never thought of it in terms of an activist. I think I'm meeting a, a market demand in the sense that there's customers, families with young children in particular, who have a – they're very hungry, uh, you know, the kind of state of the food theme, to – find healthy, nutrient-dense, and trustworthy foods. And those are the things I think we're supplying, that the customer is looking at us and saying, Trevor, similarly to the restaurant, we don't have all the time to go figure this out, to go to different farmer's markets, to ask all the questions. And over the last five years, we've been able to put on workshops, demonstrations, farm tours, etc., ways to get, uh, get our customers engaged in understanding that we do have an exceptional amount of knowledge about the producers we work with, the methods they select and why, and why this food is healthier and, and more wholesome for you. Yeah. And, you know, over, over the last weekend, um, I, I guess I, I was at a, a meeting and um, they were talking about um, the broken food supply system, particularly getting um, good quality local food to uh, the customer and, you know, having it ready available. Um, and, they were talking about maybe the idea of down down the road of having food hubs. Uh, do you see maybe what you're doing as being maybe part of a um, a food hub idea uh, where people get stuff in and uh, you're able to distribute it that way? Uh, absolutely not, actually. Um, I hear lots of similar conversations and different uh, meetings um, and conferences I go to. And unfortunately, the people that are making those acquisitions, their accusations that our food system is broken, don't have skin in the game. They're either largely what I've experienced are their extension agents, they are educators, they are people who are tangential to the organization and not on the, on the ground moving the product. I think we have one of the most efficient food distribution systems in the world. And that's evident in the fact that nobody starves and that you can go anywhere and find pretty much any product that you're looking for. The challenge is there's two challenges one is can local producers play in that bigger system that does have some red tape and some barriers that make it very difficult to to play in and that's where i've created a parallel distribution network that fits into the existing shopping behaviors of consumers or close to not exactly the existing shopping behaviors of consumers and the second challenge we have is not that the food system in terms of logistics and distribution is broken but that our education and connection and relationship to food as a nation has changed. And that, you know, I don't even want to choose just children, but the parents don't know where their food comes from or how it's produced and are disconnected with the agricultural side of our, our nation. So I don't think that the food hubs, and we can go into a long discussion about that, are the solution. I think more for-profit businesses are the solution. And the reason that I think the food hubs are not the solution is no one has figured out who owns the food hub, who owns the inventory, and who takes ownership over sales, marketing, and distribution of that product. And if a producer is marketing his product direct to a consumer on his own and then tangentially relying on a organization 
to market his product, he's always going to favor himself over that organization. And that organization is never going to get the legs it needs to, be, to meet, meet critical mass. Yeah. Um, and I know the um, the general idea, I mean, starting businesses in, I, I, I guess, in any um, climate is so, sometimes um, a little dicey. And you're not a brick-and-mortar type business, which is a traditional one, and you're not, not a farmer either. So was it difficult to be able to explain exactly what you wanted, and how was the reaction, the original reaction to what you want to do that? <laughs> oh, it's still very difficult. Um, one of our biggest challenges with customers is, or with marketing, we'll step back, the customers who we have, we have a very good retention ratio and they, they enjoy the service. What we've learned early on is that you need to set that expectation early about what they're going to get. A farm buying club or a CSA is not for everybody in the sense that you don't get to select your own groceries and you need to invest some extra time and effort into trying to, to, to do your meal planning and being creative with what you prepare. Um, so with that being said, it isn't for everybody and not for everyone's schedule either if you're very busy, et cetera. Um, for us, what we've experienced, though, is that it's difficult for us to market the service because it is a foreign concept and that people don't readily buy into a commitment unless they very much sincerely trust you as an operator, etc. And so we get all of our sales uh, word of mouth and that the customers are telling other friends and neighbors, co-workers and family members that, hey, this is a really cool thing. It's changed the way my family's ate and it's really quite affordable to eat local and quality. And, and of course, you're going to have to probably address the idea of um, eating seasonally as well as, you know, we're, we're so used to getting um, strawberries in January and peaches in Jan- January and December and all year round. Um, were they on board with that as well? It's a, Not everyone's excited about the wintertime when there's not as many peaches and things like that. And we found ways around that with, um, you know, having canned items, frozen things. And it's not the same as fresh, but uh, something that they, um, they appreciate. And, you know, and I, I think when people um, try, try to do things seasonally, you know, it, it does become a bit of um, an issue. But what about, let's just talk a little about the, the farms themselves. Um, are these, you're in Cleveland. Um, I know a lot of cities have started to get urban farms actually within the city limits um, and then just around the outside. How far sp- uh, spread out? Are your farms, and are they predominantly in the surrounding countryside, or do you have some um, urban farms in Cleveland that you can use as well? Well, I'll start in that order you went. The furthest farm, uh, we limit ourselves to 75 miles with the exception of three producers that are all uh, cheese makers. And the reason that we don't exclude them is because that product is exceptional. The investment in creating a creamery is uh, in time and money intense and they should be rewarded for having such a quality product. And those producers, those three that are outside our 75-mile radius, are all in Ohio, and they're all within 150 miles. The produce is all within a 75-mile radius, not necessarily because I believe 75 miles is the limit of what local is, because, uh, uh, you know, for example, we don't have good fish here in Ohio. So if I were interested in fish, I'd have to go somewhere else. But I keep it simple. I don't deal with fish. But the 75 miles is the distance we can make it in one day, run a loop, you know, a route and get back with the food and keep it fresh. So in terms of rotating inventory and having fresh products always coming in, that's why we select 75-mile radius. So a 
majority of my volume comes from within the 75-mile radius, and that's where the farms are in the countryside. We do have some urban farms that we work with and invest in, uh, about a handful of them. Um, one of them is an organization that has seven farms themselves, so I'm going to count them as one. And another, I want to say seven, seven urban plots. And another farm, she uh, actually was a customer of mine, and she quit her job two years ago and started uh, three different urban plots, and she's a provider to us, especially kind of restaurant-grade uh, petite vegetables and garnish. And uh, then we have a couple other small urban farms that grow specifically one or two crops and try to give us some volume. But it is something that we're hoping to grow grow with as they, they start growing up. Oh, wonderful. Um, but, you know, we need to go for our first commercial break here. Um, but we'll be back talking about a Cleveland Fresh Fork Market with Trevor Clatterbuck on America's homegrown veggies. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at America's Homegrown Veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on americaswebradio.com webpage and you can find them on iTunes and Stitchers. This morning, we are talking with Trevor Clatterbuck from Cleveland, where he started the local food supply CSA Fresh Fork Market. And Trevor, we talked about how the idea got started. So let's go a little more into the details of figuring out the best way to get what you needed. Trevor, you said that um, your furthest farm was um, 75 miles away. Um, So how did you go about figuring out what sort of farm you needed and finding and locating the right sort of farm? Well, early on, the easiest way to find producers was to go to local farmer's markets and ask those producers if they were interested in selling through a new system. At the same time, I approached extension agents and um, people in the in the farm communities to say, hey, we're interested in doing this. How can I talk to growers? And what I ended up doing was hosting town hall meetings at different community centers in the rural communities. It was the Grange or Extension Office, et cetera, and made it open and announced to the public that we'd be hosting this meeting to 
talk about a new way to market your produce. So in 2008, that's how I got my first 30 farms was that way. And then ever since then, uh, it's all been word of mouth that, you know, as it works out for a producer, they might tell, you know, another producer and that producer calls me. Uh, every time I have press and uh, different publications, I tend to get phone calls about people interested in being producers or suppliers. And over the years, it's, it works for some producers and not for others, and we've kind of refined who we work with. And, and today, I'd rather grow the volume that I'm getting from each producer rather than add more producers. And that's been the strategy that I've had for the last uh, two or three years now. So how many farms, when, when you first started this, how many farms did you start off with that was supplying stuff? And was it kind of one was doing potatoes, one was doing peaches, or were they kind of general market farmers that did the tomatoes, the peppers, the and the lettuce? I think, I don't remember the numbers exactly, <laughs> but early on I want to say that I launched my program in 2008 with a dozen farms and a dozen restaurants, because I remember just kind of marrying that number. And then by the end of the first season, I had delivered to 57 restaurants from 36 farms. Um, since then, we've grown to 108 farms. And to answer your second part of the question, early on, most of the producers were farmer's market producers that had essentially very large selections of vegetables. It was They grew a little bit of everything, so the original theory when selling to restaurants was that there was competition, that you know, each farmer grew tomatoes, and now the, they'd be competing with other producers on quality and consistency and things like that that were important to the customers um, and therefore kind of determining their own price. Since then, the producers have specialized a little bit more. Um, some of the producers definitely grow a lot of different varieties, but for me, we plan on ones that they can grow in volume and that they have the most success ratio with. So. I have some guys that specialize in the cabbage family, that they do cabbage, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, um, cauliflower very, very well. And that grower will be my primary grower of those products, and we'll plan out that for these weeks throughout the year I'm looking to have very big volume, and other weeks within season I'm looking to have some supply. And then other people will specialize in you know, tomatoes and onions and things like that. And it's based on what their farm is equipped for in terms of of soils in terms of labor availability, which is a huge one, uh, as well as refrigeration and packing capability. So if I have somebody growing lettuce for me, they need to make sure that it, it's not going to be a farm that doesn't have refrigeration. I'm going to work with a producer who has a cooler, who has a facility where he can hydro-cool the product, even if it's a more rudimentary way of doing so, not using the latest technology, but some improvised method of, of cooling the produce with water. Those are things that are important for that special crop. Um, and are, are most of them small family-type farms? Sort of, uh, at the course I was at, there were a lot of young farmers starting out, um, both men and women. Um, or are these predominantly fa- family-type farms? They're mostly family operations. And on the it varies depending on which category. So the orchards are going to be more established businesses that have a largely an immigrant labor force that comes in and helps them in the in the summer and the fall, and that the farm owner, the the guy that owns the orchard, usually is the the guy with the horticulture degree that specializes in tree fruits. Um, if you're looking at, at meat produ- production, those are largely English guys that I work with that have um, you know a family operation where the kids are getting involved. And the growing, the biggest growing segment of producers that I work with are Amish families that have. Uh, children that are looking for something to do, um, that have 
land and expertise and that they want to keep their family in the agrarian lifestyle. And so we're seeing more and more Amish producers coming in to, to produce, you know, one or two crops a year that is easier for them to market, being that they don't have trucks, they don't have phones, things like that. And we can coordinate with them to say, hey, six months from now, I want to have 3,000 chickens processed at Pleasant Valley Poultry, and here's the date, and here's the specs of what I'm looking for, and here's the price I can pay. And they say yes or no, and we, we coordinate that as a contract. And and so, um, do they do the preservation of them, or do you try to pick them up at various weeks at certain um, maybe age of chickens, so you can deliver them fresh to to your market, or at least chilled to your customers? We do all the poultry uh, frozen. We do all of our meat frozen, actually, and it's because the way we distribute, we're delivering our product on refrigerated box trucks, and working off of those as mobile stores. So, in terms of Keeping a safe temperature, safe handling of the product, and also to match the seasonality of when a producer can best finish a uh, pasture-raised product, we select frozen across the board. Then. And so how far apart are your your farms? Because with nature being kind of fickle, but you can get everything from long, wet springs to cool, wet summers that can devastate um, a whole crop and would certainly delay the planting and the harvesting. How does that um, affect? Do you have a fallback plan as well um, so that if one is wiped out from a devastating storm or, or a, a blight that you've got another one that you can call on? Yes, there is. So when we plan the production, this time of year, actually, I'm meeting with farmers planning production, the plan is to have redundancy. That if somebody is, if I expect that on the week of 4th of July I need 4,000 heads of cabbage, I'm going to plan 5,000. So that if such and such as cabbages don't come of size or they have a problem with bugs or, like you said, it might have been too wet to get them in the ground, Another producer 50 miles away might have had a different experience. And it's a matter of knowing which farms, like I said, have a uh, success ratio with certain products. So it's having that relationship, working with them year after year and saying, hey, I know Eli is not going to have good success this year with tomatoes. But he consistently has great success with cabbage. We're going to plan on cabbage Um, and just kind of work it that way. Yeah, but what about um, logistics? Um, You've got these farms all over the northeast Ohio. Um, Do you go round to the farms each week to collect all the goods and then um, sort them into bags? Do you find that you you go three times a week to the the farms on a rotation? How how does that work? And how did you set up that, um, shall we say, the logistics of getting to the farms, getting the stuff, and then um, dividing it into shares? Well, we, we do run trucks, uh, farm routes six days a week. And so the, the days I distribute to my customers are Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And the product coming in on Mondays is going to be the frozen product. So we'll do butcher runs and grains and stuff like that that are less perishable on Mondays. And then Tuesdays is going to be our big route for the week that's going to get most of the supply that's going to be used on Wednesday and Thursday. And then Tuesday's route is repeated Friday morning. Uh, in which case, on Friday, our trucks don't distribute till late in the evening. And then uh, on Thursday and Saturday mornings, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday mornings, I run, eh, depending on the time of the year, usually about two trucks in the morning. They'll run from 5.30 in the morning till noon and pick up backup supply to be used on those days, on Wednesday, Thursday, and, and Friday. 
And so how long did it uh, maybe take uh, for you, because you're not obviously from a, a farming background, to get, shall, shall we say, um, a, a timeline for um, when, when you should be contacting farms, when you should be checking on farms, when things are going to be ready, what you can offer and how you're going to get it to them. Um, that obviously takes a lot of um, organisation. How long did it take for you to get up to speed with that? I'm still learning, so it's, it's still, you know, and the farmers I work with are still learning. I work with guys that are in their 70s, and every year there's some surprise. So I, I'd say that we'll never have it down to the point that we can plan it like the you know, industrial food system has it, but we can, you know, through the experiences of the last five years, I have a pretty good idea about when stuff's in season, um, how to, you know, going back to my notes, when to plant it with the producers, uh, you know, when we need to order our seed potatoes, when we need to do this and that, and it's just a matter of staying on top of yourself and staying organized. And, and obviously you, you do different um, vegetables, and you mentioned chickens. Um, do, do you, what other things do you um, include in a share? Um, I mean, do, do you include, for instance, herbs or cut flowers? Uh, I, did you mention grain was in there as well? So we do, my focus on the product that we sell is, the theory behind what I'm doing is that we're trying to feed families. So I don't specialize in specialty. So when I say specialty, I mean uh, something that you wouldn't be able to feed a lot of people off of. Like um, I would never give my customers in their, their farm buying club bag lamb chops. Too expensive for the a good value. It's not a good family value. We do produce, we do whole grains, flowers, uh, wheat berries, spelt berries, oat, stuff like that. We do the fruits, we do pickles and preserves, uh, we do meat, both red and, and poultry as well. So we do uh, pork, beef, lamb, uh, chicken, turkey, and then I have some specialty items that people can order a la carte, like ducks, geese, pheasants, guineas, um, venison, stuff like that that's all farm-raised. And then there are herbs that the customers can special order online. So we do have a web portal where they can order additional product. But I would never feature herbs or cut flowers in somebody's bag. Uh, and, in fact, I don't sell cut flowers at all because they're about the most impossible thing to handle. And <laughs> they are. But do, do you introduce eggs or ice cream or anything like that among them? We do a lot of eggs. We sell probably a 1,000 dozen eggs a week or so. Um, oh, wow. At least. And that's um, that's a big selling item for us. Our customers love it, and, and they they rely on the eggs. Um, ice cream, no. I do have ice cream we get in for special events, but it's too difficult to transport, and it doesn't fit into – we also try to focus on no white sugar in anything we do, and we don't have anyone making a sugar-free ice cream around here. Oh, well, at least they've got some variety. But, you know, we need to take another quick uh, break here. But I want to remind everyone, you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggies. And we'll be back with more from Trevor Clatterbuck, Cleveland's Fresh Fork Market. Um, and when we come back, we'll turn over to the, um, the customer base. We will be right back. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio. 
Saturday morning at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the world of master gardening. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You're back listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking with Trevor Clatterbuck from Cleveland, where he runs a new type of model CSA called Fresh Fork Farm. Um, And, Trevor, we talked about uh, finding the farms and convincing them to come on board, but what about the customers um how did you find find them i know a lot of sort of local farms would have their own csas out there um did, were people familiar with what uh, what a csa was in the first place and and the difference that you were offering them um yes and no i mean it's interesting a lot of our customers are first-time csa members and uh oftentimes not regular farmers market uh visitors um, the customers that we're finding, the early ones were the, the early adopters of the service were your uh, very progressive folks that have been shopping at farmer's markets that are familiar with the CSA, and this was another option for them. Uh, and then now, the further and further we get down the line, we're finding that our customers are kind of fall into three different categories. And it's also dictated a little bit geography, uh, the geography of Cleveland into what communities they live in. Um, we tend to see in our suburban communities that we have young families who either have young children or have infants or about to have children that are now starting to think about this is the first time in my life I've had to worry about nutrition and diet, and I'm responsible for another human being's life, and this is an important decision now. So they're interested in finding the healthiest food for their, their family. The second group of customers we have are going to be empty nesters that tend to entertain more, uh, that are going to be, I'd say, late 40s, early 50s, into their 60s. And, um, you know, those customers are going to be more of your foodies. And then we have a younger population of um, young professionals, uh, both, you know, earning a good living as well as those who might work in the nonprofit sector and don't, don't hardly make a living that are interested in doing this because they believe in buying local, they believe in protecting the environment, and they, um, they're very into this. 
Okay. Did you net, network um, or, or find organizations to help you maybe target that right or audience that, that would be a likely customer? Or um, did you just find, find them may, maybe uh, – did, did you define what customers you wanted maybe before – you found them, um, what type of people were receptive, or was it just through networking with like minds? Well, yeah, you know, the early customers that I um, that I had, um, I actually went door-to-door, knocked on doors, left flyers, stuff like that, and then from there I think the customer base has kind of morphed on its own. And, and you, you said um, at the start that you still have some restaurants on board. Um, how, how is it different maybe um, finding restaurants to t- take your, your pro- produce versus customers? Um, are they more of a stable? Um, obviously, the quantity b- would be more, but are, are they more stable as a customer base? Repeat that question. I'm not sure I quite understand what your what the question was. Um, well, the, the, you have some um, restaurants that you mentioned that you you also you started out with restaurants and then you went to to customers. Um, is there a difference between um, the sort of thing that a, cus- a, a customer um, will accept versus the uh, the restaurants? I mean, are the restaurants more of a stable um, customer base because they they obviously need more um, vegetables? Um, no, they're not. I don't think the restaurants are more stable customer base. Um, the biggest problem with restaurants that, from what I've experienced, or challenge, I don't even want to call it a problem, it's just a, the nature of the beast, that they, I'll give you a prime example. I had a restaurant, um, well, I have a restaurant I still sell to, and they want, they were getting fingerling potatoes, and they'd want 10 pounds a week, which you're like, what are you doing with 10 pounds of potatoes at one of Ohio's? you know, Cleveland's busiest fine dining restaurant. And they'd get 10 pounds per week, 10 pounds per week. And I'm like, you know, I'd go to the chef and say, chef, these are the same potatoes every week you're getting. They're harvested at the same time. It isn't like we're keeping them in the ground and harvesting them when you, you call. You know you're going to take them every week. Why don't you take them in bulk? So finally we were able to, to ink a deal because I got tired of running out there for 10 pounds of potatoes. So I just kept, just told them, like, if you don't take more potatoes, the price is going up. So it went up, and then he ordered more potatoes, and now he orders them once a month. But the restaurant industry is trained and and incentivized to keep weekly food costs low. They're competing on a weekly number basis. And so they're going to trim stuff one week, you know, splurge the next week, et cetera, and it's hard for the farmer to plan for that. And particularly for me, it's hard for me to communicate to a producer who's 75 miles away, get the inventory in fresh when I have very little warning. Most restaurants place their orders the night before. They'll call all the way up till 10 p.m. and place an order hoping to have it there the next day. So the restaurants that it works very well with take some some education and and communication on my part and from that of the, the chef, understand that you can't have local overnight. Like you got to plan on it a little bit more. And oftentimes the, the planning side doesn't fit the way that a, men, a menu at a restaurant is planned. Menus are planned for, you know, one quarter at a time, spring, summer, fall, winter, not one week at a time or three weeks at a time in the case that, you know, maybe strawberries are only in season for a month. They want to have them on their menu the entire quarter. Yeah, um, which obviously would cause um, a few problems. But um 
with a, a CSA in in general, you um, it requires that, um, as, as I mentioned, that people eat seasonally, pretty much, um, and and that you don't get to choose what's in the share. Um, do you give people a choice besides you can be vegetarian or or not, um, and as to what they get in their share? So there are three different packages. Omnivore that includes meat, cheeses, and produce. There's vegetarian that excludes the meats but has dairy still and grains, uh, like pastas and stuff that have egg in them. And then there's a vegan package. So we do have those three basic dietary plans that fit most of the customers. And then within those, we let them set uh, allergies. So if they have a gluten intolerance, we can customize to that. If they have diverticulitis and can't have seeds, we can take out the sweet corn and the strawberries and stuff like that. The... Customization, though, if you ask politely and aren't a repeat offender, we'll gladly accommodate you. But the picking and choosing on a weekly basis is just doesn't fit the model. It doesn't, um, for example, anyone who wants to give back kale, which is kind of the running joke in CSAs, um, you know, we encourage them and encourage them to take it and try it, and here's a different way to, to try it. And every week we have a blog, we have a newsletter, and we even have an area on our website where the customers can ask a chef. And these are all ways to try to get them to adapt the products that are available here uh, seasonally. So in terms of customization, the base package, a little customization. If they want to order items all la carte in addition to their base package, they want to order ribeye steaks, if they want to order you know, extra peaches to do some canning, if they want to order extra kale for, you know, whatever they're making, a frittata or whatever, they can do that. And that is customization that we, we do promote and we do allow. And and so when um, when when uh, people want, um, did you find maybe that uh, when when pe- that was a hard sell um, to people? And I know that's why um, typically a, a CSA doesn't um, have too much options. But what, was that hard, particularly with um, the people you were searching out? Were, were they very accommodating? For that, because I know that is one of the beauties of a CSA is that you do get to try different things because it's in there. Um, were they were they accommodating, or did, or did you lose some customers because they were sick of getting maybe kale for four weeks on the trot? Oh, absolutely. That's one of the hardest parts of the business is to, is to balance the selection. So each week I try not to give the same thing they got the week before, with the exception of something that's highly you know very popular. If it's blueberries, if it's peaches, if it's strawberries, customers don't complain because that a couple weeks in a row. If I give them kale or Swiss chard or collard greens or winter squash a couple weeks in a row, then it starts to get a problem. So it's my role as the, the organizer and the farm liaison to plan accordingly with my producers to make sure that there, there is not excessive redundancy in the product availability so that every week they don't get the same thing and that they can use up everything in their fridge. One of the reasons somebody will quit a CSA is they're wasting food because they get too much food. So that is my responsibility to make that happen. Uh, and I think we've done a very good job of doing that with the products we've offered and the, the variety and the selection. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you, when, you know, I know that you um, include 
the the meats uh, um, and and cheeses and things like that, which is um, probably different to most CSA models. Um, but did you start out by just um, starting with the basic fruits and veg, and then find uh, you suddenly found found yourself in front of a great meat uh, producer or mushroom producer, and thought that would be great to to add to it, or did you envision having that uh, full grocery cart right from the start? That was the original concept, was the full grocery cart. And and so has your customer base maybe changed from those early days? No, I don't, I mean, other than the natural evolution of more families um, being involved in my my first year, no, I don't think it's really changed. And, and I know that you're, you're now um, almost five years um, old. Um, is there something that you would have done differently if you were able to start it over again? Uh, uh, would, would, did you do it right the first time? Oh, I mean, that's an unfair question to ask any business owner. I mean, we make mistakes left and right with, um, you know, planning too much of this, paying too much for that, paying too little for that, having, um, you know, wrong-sized trucks, hiring the wrong person, um, not doing the right trade. I mean, there's, you can count the number of mistakes any business owner makes. In terms of the design of my service and what we offer, I think that it's um, the only thing that I could, I wish I could change was having more time to do the things that we want to do. And that's, you know, right now we've found ourselves doing a lot of workshops, a lot of tours, a lot of uh, classes and educational opportunities to engage the customers. And, and we find that rewarding from a staff point of view as well as from a marketing point of view. And I think that that's about the only thing that we always have a desire to do more for, more of. And, and so mo- most of your customers are within the um, the Cleveland area itself. They're not quite as far apart as the farms, for instance. That's correct. Um, if you're familiar with Cleveland's geography, there's uh, an interstate bypass that goes around the city that's called 480. And uh, we work within the 480 constraints that with the exception of, I think, two locations are all within that 480 uh, circle. And we have a downtown Cleveland location, we have a couple near urban locations, and then we have your your suburbs as well. We try to keep a blend of those. Okay. Um, Well, we need to take our final um, commercial break here, but come back, everyone, and listen to more about Fresh Fork Market with Trevor Clatterbuck, and we'll be back after these messages. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Quick Stakes, that's 
Q-U-I-K Steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. I hope you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. We have been talking with Trevor Clatterbuck about his five-year-old company called Fresh Fork Market in Cleveland. So, Trevor, um, let's talk about signing up for the shares in the uh, the CSA or the Fork Market. Um, how do they uh, how do they maybe sign up for one of these? Well, all of our customers sign up online. Uh, I don't want to say all; some of them call in, but we try to make it self-service because it tends to be the most popular option, and it's also a lower cost for the business owner. So we've developed a pretty robust website and a uh, custom Android device to you know, help the customers not only engage with us, but for us to engage with the customers both on our distribution routes as well as um, you know, from them uh, in the field. And, and the, the the website is Fresh Fork Market. Is that right? Yeah. It's- it's Fresh Fork Market. I know we're on the radio and, and via the phone as well, so sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand. But the middle word is fork, like a nice spoon and fork, uh, the kitchen utensil, utensils. And it's just freshforkmarket.com. Okay. Um, and so if people sign up, they can find out about um, the different sizes of shares on there. Can, do you also say the dates that they start and finish? Oh, absolutely. The website's got all the details we put in there. You know, everything from payment plans, schedules that show the payment dates, the cost per week, etc. Uh, it's got the season start dates, end dates, the entire calendar for the whole year is posted of all of our events, picnics, farm tours, stuff like that. Uh, we even put all the recipes. Um, everything's online. So the customer can get a pretty good idea about what they're getting, including all the contents from last year, the year before, the year before that, so they can see how the season progresses. And when you do the the smaller shares, uh, maybe just for a single person versus a family, do they just get smaller portions of everything, or do you just re- maybe the the single person doesn't get maybe the grains or or the... uh, no, we do um, we do a small and a large package, and then we do what's called our full access. It's a hybrid, and the small package think of it as the base package that everybody gets. And the small package is available in omnivore, vegetarian, and vegan. So the omnivore is going to have that center of the plate item that might be a whole chicken, it might be ground beef, it might be something along those lines. And then the large package is going to be the small package plus additional items, not more of the same items, but additional variety, usually higher-priced items like cheeses, additional meats, stuff like that. And then our full-access package is a, uh, as I mentioned, it's our hybrid package. It's the small package plus the customer gets credits to our website. And for committing up front at the beginning of the season, they get a discount. 
and that allows them to purchase items all a card on the website and build out half their package. So that package works very well for, for particularly families with several children, so they can pre-order milk, they can pre-order eggs, they can pre-order um, you know, extra fruit, etc. each week, and they'll get a discount for doing so. It's essentially like having a coupon. And and so if if somebody wanted um, a special um, order of something, um, maybe they were having a party or something, um, would they be able just for one week to say, you know, okay, I'm a single person, I I've got the contract for um, just maybe one person, one of the small ones. Could I just on this one week maybe get the large pack? Yeah, they can up, they can scale up, they can order up and upgrade. Uh, they just pay more for that upgrade than the, you know, somebody who would subscribe for the whole season for that upgrade. And and do the shares go all the way through the year, or are they just so, summer shares? No, they go all year long. We do two seasons. We do a summer season that's weekly, and that's 22 weeks long, and then we do a winter season that goes every other week all winter long. And we actually have uh, deliveries tomorrow, and uh, I've got trucks on the road today, um, picking up food from farms, and I've got trucks that are stranded in my parking lot because they won't start because it's too cold, and, you know, we've got, we've got all kinds of uh, fun stuff going on around here. Oh, I, I would imagine that, that winter it's a little more interesting trying to find things um, be, because of the tra- travel time. Um, but well, it's, it's not just finding them, but it's distributing them. Like, if we have, you know, apples on the truck or we have fresh greens, my refrigerated truck's you know, they get cold well, but they don't keep things warm well. So if it's, you know, this week the predicted temperature is going to be 6 degrees, we're going to have a hard time not keeping keeping things from freezing on the on the delivery route. And so that's a, a big challenge. And we do all of our winter distributions outside. So my staff will stand outside, we'll set up a tent, we'll set up our tables, and we'll distribute the groceries all winter long in a parking lot outside for four hours at a time. Ooh, <laughs> yes. And so, so do you not normally have delivery areas um, maybe in, in buildings, if you've got people in, in maybe a community block or something like that, um, or, or a large business, uh, and you've got enough people, would you actually go to that, uh, that business and deliver maybe six shares to that one building because you've got people in that building? We do. Uh, we require a minimum of 50 shares to do a custom stop like that. Um, and most of our, that's kind of the break-even point on a, a distribution stop to staff it, put a big truck on the road, et cetera. It's right around 50 shares for us. And if we do something for the, you know, accessible to the general public, you know, some of our stops will have as many as 300 customers that come to that one stop. So for us to take those inside a building, we would have to literally have a loading dock and a storefront that we would, Mm. You know, do a pop-up ad. So the way that our system works is we actually assemble the customer's bag on the back of the truck. That way the frozen items stay in the frozen compartment of the truck. The dry goods stay near, near the back where they can stay room temperature and the refrigerated stuff in the middle. And all those items get assembled at the last second so that the customer's product is as fresh and high quality as possible. And and so do do you host any special events maybe that the um, that the customers can can attend? Oh, we've got over 50 of them planned for this year. Um, last night we had a chocolates for dinner class in which we incorporate uh, kind of a pre-Valentine's Day theme of incorporating chocolates in a savory application. So we did a, you know, cocoa and ginger dusted meatballs, and we did a chocolate sauce on, on a pumpkin ravioli and things like that. And we do cooking classes throughout the year. We do butchering classes in which we pair 
dinner with an actual uh, whole carcass butchering demonstration, and we do three of those a year for different animals. Uh, we do a farm tour. We do a threshing demonstration in which the customers get to come out and see a horse drawn reaping in a steam-powered threshing event. We get to do uh, we do picnics and happy hours. We do open houses. Um, events are a big part of what we do. Oh. Because uh, it's a big part of being one community with your food. Yeah, and uh, you know, and, and I certainly think when uh, you know people see where their food is coming from, it uh, and be able to do, do the chefs actually show people maybe the basics. Um, I mean, a lot of people aren't familiar with things like kales or rutabagas, for instance, and they don't know what to do with them. Do do your uh, demonstrations maybe show people what to do with them, or do you rely on maybe a um, a newsletter where they where you give maybe things to do with these things? Well, we do both. There's a newsletter, there's a blog, uh, and then we have a, what we call our chef in residence, who's a uh, chef consultant who's retired and he works part-time for me. And uh, what he does is he teaches some of our workshops and organizes other ones. And uh, his job is to find those workshops that the customers need assistance with. So uh, we always do a greens workshop. We do... Um, a chicken 101 class because customers don't know on a large scale what to do with a whole chicken. They're used to buying boneless, skinless chicken breast. So at, at Chicken 101, we teach, teach them how to quarter up chicken. We teach them how to debone the drumstick and thigh. Uh, we teach them how to do a double breast uh, you know, bone-on roast. Uh, we do all kinds of different things, and they get to eat chicken at the dinner. And then at the end of the course, they all get a whole chicken, a cutting board and a knife, and they have to do it themselves. And so those are the type of classes that we focus on. And each year, some of them work, some of them don't. So, you know, this year we're adding a cabbage class because we get people that just don't know what to do with a cabbage other than coleslaw. And so we want to really highlight that, that fabulous ingredient. Oh, well, that, that, that's great that you, you guys do do that. Um, and how, how long may, maybe are the, the average classes? Um, and are they during the day or weekends? Evenings on weekdays, and they're two to three hours. So, and people sign up in advance for that, right? Yes, they do. And they're usually limited for, depending on the venue where we have them at. Uh, the biggest one last year uh, for a class was 70 people, and it was a Thanksgiving beer dinner in which we taught them how to, uh, you know, roast a turkey and make all the side dishes, and then we had the Thanksgiving dinner paired with beer. And then um, the smallest class was probably we did a uh, vegan workshop uh, there was 35 people, and that was all we could fit in the facility. So, so how often do you publish uh, the newsletters? Weekly. They're, they're, they're a weekly one, and, and they, they come by email, right? Uh, you can subscribe to our blog, in which you would get an email alert, but they're posted on our website and Facebook. And do, do you tell people ahead of time what's going to be, what to expect within the, their share that they're picking up on Wednesday so they can maybe look at um, a few recipes online to find out what to do with them? That's correct. We do that on Mondays. And, and so they can see that on, on the, the website as well, right? Well, they, they do get an email alert about that one. Like I actually physically send a blast email out to everyone for that season. But it's also posted on the website, yes. I mean, I, I think it's a great idea, um, you know, what, what, what you're doing. Um, uh, but, but we're close to the, um, the end of the, the show here, Trevor. Um, I think what you're doing is great. Um, and I, I guess it's a little different from law, but your business background must have been useful in uh, setting all, all this up. Um, it, it, it. 
yeah um and you know be, being with um i guess like like-minded people it really does um does does help and do, do you envision this in sort of being replicated in other cities across the the country you know i really can't say that's um I could say yes. I know that it could be done in other cities. The problem is, is that you've got to find supply. You've got to find. I mean, you're literally building from the ground up an entire distribution supply chain, plus customer base. I mean, the the number of moving parts is just unreal. So it'd be very difficult to do in a different location and get up to speed in a profitable fashion. When I did it here. I was doing it myself, and I wasn't getting paid. It was part of that that risk of being an entrepreneur, and so that'd be something for you know either a partner or somebody else to undertake in another another city. Yeah, um, and and of course, different areas are um, you know I mean, there's farms pretty much all across the the, the country, but uh, yeah, it would be lovely to find find more of these. I think it's a great model. Um, but you know, we we are at the end of the show, Trevor. Um, but I, I want to thank everyone for listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show this morning. Thank you, Trevor. Um, it's it's been a great talk, and I'm really enthusiastic about what you're doing. I think it's wonderful. Um, but everyone, we will be back. Back next week with another show talking all about growing veggies. Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. Okay. All right. Good. Well, thanks for having me, Kate. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.